What's up, listeners? It's Andrea. Today, we break out our space charts. You leave the holodeck one toe at a time, and we ask the question, is this one a scary premise or not so much? Come nerd out with us. Welcome to the TNG Podcast, the number one place in the Alpha Quadrant to geek out about all things Star Trek The Next Generation. I'm your co-host, Sharice. Hey, I'm your co-host, Andrea. Sharice, today we're talking Season 6, Episode 12, Ship in a Bottle, a total fan favorite episode. I am so excited to break this down with you and with everyone. This episode was written. Right? I'm so excited. I, just, I can't even do There's just so many great elements to it. This episode was written by Renee Echevarria and directed by Alexander Singer. In this episode, which continued a plot line from like season two, mm-hmm. the fictional holodeck character, Professor James Moriarty, seizes control of the Enterprise in his quest to be free to live in reality outside the confines of a holographic environment. Oh, what are your initial bum, thoughts bum, on this episode? Bum. Yes. Oh, this is so so my <laughs> my thoughts are just like, OMG, this is one of my favorite episodes of all time. Of ever, right? Mm-hmm. This is definitely a, I feel like I've said this is a top 10, like more than 10 times. So we should probably like go back and, and, you know, write some stuff down so I can know what the other top 10 are. But this is definitely a top 10 of mine. This is a fave. This is one I watch over and over. It combines two of my favorite things, which is Star Trek and Sherlock Holmes. I've always loved Sherlock, but only recently, only as an adult, did I ever read all the stories. But I always loved Sherlock's type stories. Yeah. Um, and after reading the stories and then rewatching this episode, I was like, wait a minute, Moriarty doesn't doesn't have like a random girlfriend. Like what is going on? Like I was mm. I was like, who are these people? And it's and we'll get into it a little bit later what the actor who played this role um said about this character and mm-hmm. being invented for this universe, not the same Sherlock Holmes and Moriarty that we're uh used to. But um uh, still great. Like just love it even more what what are your initial thoughts i'm i'm with you on that where i really really loved elementary dear data it was so fun it was season two mm-hmm. episode one i believe yeah. that was elementary dear data and it's like okay this is early season two we still haven't seen like tons and tons about the holodeck so it was elementary dear data was fabulous because one it kind of gave us a more in-depth look at like the magic of the holodeck and mm-hmm. like who wouldn't spend all their downtime in the holodeck i would but then it also gave spend, us like sherlock my uptime as well I, <laughs> I'd, I'd be barclay like where are you duty should have started like 30 minutes ago I'm like oops <laughs> sorry i was in london <laughs> i know track of the time <laughs> <laughs> right but like that so that episode gave us the magic of the holodeck but it also mm-hmm. gave us like sherlock uh, daniel davis who plays professor james moriarty does such a fabulous job and when we get to revisit or I guess he gets to revisit us in this episode. It's like, you're back. Like, it's just so fun. And it's such a delight to watch. So I have a couple initial thoughts. I mean, that's sort of one. Also, mm-hmm. this episode comes right on the heels of Chain of Command Part 1 and 2, which is really heavy, heavy mm-hmm. stuff. For those who maybe didn't listen to that recap or skipped it or don't remember it, it's the one where Picard gets captured and tortured horrifically right so it's really heavy it's really triggering this is like the opposite of that it's mm-hmm. so light it's fun like i feel like there might be one or two little plot holes in it but it's like who cares like it, the whole thing is just such a fan fave and i will tell you at the end when i did my final thoughts i wrote one of my top 10 favorite episodes and then i stopped and i was like i feel like i have 13 top 10 favorite episodes so i thought the same thing as you <laughs> i was like maybe i need to make a top 15 or something i don't know <laughs> 
need to write these down because I don't I don't even know what number that I'm at, but this is definitely it's at the top. As two women who have a background in science and know how to take diligent notes, I will say we have failed spectacularly at this because we're like top yeah. five, top three, top ten. Not writing anything down, guys. We're literally making it up <laughs> as we go along. <laughs> we sure don't. We sure don't. But we do write notes all about the episode. And here's a fun thing that we did this time around, which we haven't done before. Um, Daniel Davis, who plays Moriarty, is available on Cameo. So if the app Cameo still exists at the time of this recording when you hear this, mm-hmm. you can go on there and you can also pay just a little bit of money and hear his thoughts on different roles that he's played. Obviously, we want to hear about his roles as Moriarty all the times that he's um, been in it. And it was honestly so much fun to just like watch him reminisce on what it was like on the show, on some recent experiences that he's had uh, with the cast that I I didn't know until he said it in the in the video that we mm-hmm. got. Um, I mean, I don't know. I just, I love it. I geeked out. And actually, the only reason we knew he was available is because one of our listeners sent us a cameo from him. And we were like, oh my gosh, it's <laughs> yeah no so we great. like immediately started freaking out <laughs> we were like oh, he's talking to us yes it, it was super super cool um and uh daniel davis if you're listening thank you for your time because he ha- he was so generous with his time i've um seen some cameos before where people are like hey andrea happy birthday hope it's awesome xoxo right which is like cool but he mm-hmm. spent like time to like sit down and really like get into the character it was just lovely and and i will say one of the nice things about cameo is when you watch a video it doesn't have like a time stamp on it so Mm -hmm. you don't know how long the video is so you're like it could end kind of whenever or it's like oh he's still going oh my god like so i didn't know if it was going to be like a one minute video or like an eight minute video and it was something in between and it was just so oh my gosh it was so magical and we're going to we're going to divulge all of that but i will say right off the top this episode obviously is a sequel to elementary dear data um and so this is a great combination between like the tng universe and like the conan doyle universe which is just mm-hmm. like oh my god this is so great so it was a really popular episode for fans and among like the cast and crew they really wanted to bring this back however um the TNG people or whoever worked at Paramount who was doing all the like legal licensing made some sort of boo-boo because they thought since it had been like 50 years past Conan Doyle's death, they could use the material and it was like part of the public domain. It was not. It was not at all. And, and so it is not. And it will still not is not be public domain. It still is not, right? So they didn't do the appropriate legwork to like get it cleared. So the Conan Doyle Society was like, no, we're not gonna let you do a second episode of this. Like you kind of just lifted our material for your TV show. Like, that's not okay. So they ended up having to get all this work done to, like, get a licensing fees and all that kind of stuff um, in order to bring this back. So the Conan Doyle Society does own the rights to the Sherlock Holmes universe. And I believe the legal terminology is in perpetuity in the in the known universe, <laughs> which is, like, the legal term. Yeah. I was like, wow. So unless you're in some parallel dimension, you cannot use their stuff. <laughs> You That's cannot. like, this is like ironclad, right? <laughs> it's no act good to know. Yeah. Anyway, and so by there the was way, that. The, re- the reason they do that is because the foundation does give to like lots of charities and has a lot of amazing work they're doing in the world. Yes, they do. So that's why they're so committed to protecting their IP. It's not just because they're selfish or something, just so people yeah. know. Um, but thankfully, everything got cleared and we were able to get this amazing character back. 
So the episode picks up in the holodeck. So you already know mm-hmm. it's going to be a winner. Like, that's a so good sign. fun. The same way every time we see like a lightning bolt of electricity, it's a bad sign. When we see the episode start with the holodeck, it's a good <laughs> sign. Like, that's that's what we're God. going with. Here. What? God, you're so right. When an episode starts in the holodeck, great episode. When it starts off with a lightning storm, it's going to be bad. <laughs> you're it's right. going to be bad. It's going to be bad. I never thought of that. Mm-hmm. So it starts out and we see um, Data playing Sherlock. And he's kind of, you know, talking to this, talking to a client in Baker Street and talking about his brother's suicide and how it really wasn't a suicide and it was all staged. And it's very Sherlock Holmes. It's really cool. He's like, obviously, I noticed this and I noticed this and I noticed this. And we've got Jordy in the background doing a really bad British accent and then just dropping the accent because it was bad. Um, Yeah, I was really glad that he did that. I was like, okay, buddy, that's good. He did like like one sentence with the accent and then he stopped. And I was like, that's a good call. That's a good call. so as they're playing at, or as they're in this, you know, kind of play, um, Data throws something to the client and he says, um, the killer was left-handed just like you, something like that. Mm-hmm. And then Jordy's like, uh, Data, he's holding that in his right hand. And Data's like, wait, wait a minute. Okay, there's something wrong with the program because he should be left-handed. So this yeah. is our first clue that the holodeck's a little bit wonky because of this wrong-handedness. Which we have not seen something like this before. I don't think we've seen a holodeck glitch quite like this, where you see so clearly that the program's off, but it's not because like yeah, I feel like we saw. I feel like we saw something like that back in the Dixon Hill days, but not to this extent where it's like, huh? The like the programming matrix has like some sort of glitch in it that's causing the characters to malfunction. Yeah, yeah, but it's a minor glitch. It's not like in the in the Dixon Hill where they start shooting you and the safeties are off. It's not like yeah, yeah, no, no, no. Like oh, it's the wrong hand. Okay, well that's weird. So they end the program and Jordy calls um, Reg Barclay. We see him again. I don't remember the last time we saw Reg, but it feels that like was, he's always around. That was the same thing I wrote. I wrote, Jordy calls Barclay. And then in parentheses, I wrote, oh, he's still here? <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly how it feels. We're he like, didn't, oh, he didn't he... want to transfer over to DS9? Because I would have been like, later, buddy. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Reg. So he he comes over and he's like, okay, can you come and fix this transporter or the transporter, the holodeck problem? And so he's like, yes, I'm on my way. By the time Data and Jordy walk out of the holodeck, like 30 seconds later, Reg is there. So he dropped whatever he was doing, hypo spray, spanners, whatever he had in his hand, dropped it and just ran. There's just a trail to... of isolinear chips yes. <laughs> from main engineering to the holodeck. And dust. And that's it. And I was just kind of like, was this the most important to fix the hall? Okay, well, anyways, he's there it is, instantly. It is Barclay. I mean, he 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 wasn't even a main engineering girl. He was hanging around outside. He was waiting to get in the holodeck? Yeah, yeah. So when they happened to come out and they're like, oh, you're here already. He's like, yes, already. He tried to act out of breath to make it seem like he just, yes, who made it. <clears throat> Priority one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so he, he goes, anyways, he goes in to fix it. We're just crapping on Barclay. You know the usual. Um, but he goes in to fix it. <laughs> and as he's trying to find any anomalies, he finds this weird program. And he's like, what is this thing that's like continuously running in the background? And he starts it. And it's Moriarty. And as a fan, and as someone who absolutely loves this episode and seen it a hundred times, I was like, oh my gosh, it's Moriarty. I still freaked out. I was still super excited. I know. Well, I think also like Daniel Davis has the most like striking, intense blue eyes. So what he brings that like to the character of Professor Moriarty. And there's just such an intensity to him. 
even when he's talking with Barclay, he's like, how long has it been? How long have I been here? Is Captain Picard still captain of the ship? And Barclay's like, how do you know any of this? Like, how do you know you're not real? Who Captain Picard is? What a holiday is like, I'm going to need to, you know. And poor, we find out that poor Moriarty has, like, been aware of the passage of time. He's been in there for like four years. And he said like these little terrifying little blips of reality where like, you know, you're just like trapped in limbo. Like that sounds yeah, like dis- a disembodied hell. consciousness. It's kind of like yes. a nightmare, but for four years. It is a nightmare. Oh my gosh. Yeah, no. So Picard, you know, sorry, Moriarty is like, wait a minute. Picard promised he would work on this and he hasn't. It's been four years. You know, so Barclay's like, you know what? Maybe I should just get the captain. I'm going to shut down the program and then we'll be right back. And Moriarty's like, okay. And as he shuts down the program and leaves the holodeck, we see a shot back of the holodeck and Moriarty reappears. So it's like, oh, he's he's not playing by the rules. Great. Again, it's like, oh, did he just totally fake out Barclay mm-hmm. and pretend to be like turned off and turn himself mm-hmm. back on? That was really cool. Also really scary because you're like, uh-oh, the call is coming from inside the house. Like this is <laughs> this is you shouldn't be able to do that. Well, um and so that great Moriarty. <laughs> <laughs> that's what you get, Jordy, for a slip of the tongue, buddy. Mm-hmm. So we cut to we cut to like credits. That's you know where it le- leaves off. When we come back, Captain's log is telling us that the Enterprise has arrived at the Detrium system to witness a unique celestial event. The collision of two gas giant planets, which will form a new star. And I got to tell you, this is the first time that since we've started this podcast that I literally put like a flow chart in my notes because that's incorrect. (laughs) I'll tell you what it is. Because I was just teaching science this last semester, like at school, my students really wanted to learn a lot about space and being a space nerd. I'm like, heck yeah. So we actually did a whole bunch of like solar system stuff and star life cycle. So the star life cycle, there is no such thing as like Jupiter and Saturn, which are our resident gas giants, giants. like colliding Mm -hmm. to make a new star. That's not what happens at all. You have to start off as a proto star and then it kind of branches off. You're either like a really massive star or you're like a low to medium mass star, like our sun, which will Mm -hmm. become a red giant and then kind of explode and become like a planetary nebula and then condense again and become like a white dwarf. And then it burns all the way out to a black dwarf. The massive, massive, massive stars are the ones that go supernova and become like a black hole or neutron star. So to be honest, the massive stars are like the rock stars. <laughs> They're the ones that like explode and become a black hole. And all that. But I was like, I was looking through the notes and I'm like, yeah, I'm sorry, TNG. I love you guys. And I love this episode so much, but we are not colliding two gas giant planets and making a star. That's not a thing. But he, I just felt but I needed so, to say that. <laughs> so, when I, so when I watched that scene, I was like, that doesn't sound right, but maybe it is. So I Googled it and here's where I think they got it from. So, oh my God. I'm I, so glad he did <laughs> so Look I googled it. it. Okay, everybody, push your eyeglasses up. <laughs> Let's get and make it. sure your suspenders are on tightly. Yeah. Um, so what what I found on the internet was that stars are formed by an accumulation of gas and dust, which collapses due to gravity. So that's yes. what starts that protostar. So I think this is where they got it from because they're saying a- accumulation of gas and dust and gravity. So a gas giant is an accumulation of gas and dust, and it has mm-hmm. its own gravity, which is what yeah. makes it a, a planetary a type yeah, space. Mm-hmm. So that's where I think they got it from. I was like, oh, okay. So I see they're saying like, okay, if we just make that that collapsing more like aggressive, maybe that'll form a star. So okay. any, 
in any case, what a fun idea and what a cool visual. Mm-hmm. Like every time they showed the gas giants and like the swirly gas, I was like, woo, how'd they do you, that? I feel like nobody <laughs> does swirly gas better than Star Trek. Ugh. Honestly, it's just it's just so good. So, yeah, I was like, um, I'm sorry, Jordy, that's not correct. But I will say the collapsing, like the swirly, it's like these two gas giant planets are kind of doing a dance around each other and then they collapse. And it is really, really, really cool. Now, Jordy gives his team this rundown of what they need to have ready in place for the celestial event. And Barkley kind of swings through main engineering and he's like, you'll never guess who I just ran into on the holodeck. Moriarty and they were like uh Data and Jordy are like oh fuck Rut row. yeah, yeah. they're like we, we forgot about that guy <laughs> we 100% forgot about that dude and now he's probably mad and he's smart enough to defeat Data so bad 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 so of course and really like, those two of everybody should be the most like on top of it because they're completely responsible for his existence so like 100% much more than Picard yes Picard's the captain but Jordy created him for data. So, so we're all, yeah. we all got a little bit of responsibility here, but <laughs> more of the story is we've all forgotten about Moriarty and they we sure have. Yeah. So, so they bring the like, card to the, yeah. to the holodeck where they're like, we need to have a meeting with him right away. And I love that Moriarty is like, Hey Picard. Um, so about that thing you promised me that then I didn't hear back about what happened there. He, Picard basically tells Moriarty that despite their best research, like they did really look into it, but they still can't figure out how he became sentient or how to get him off the holodeck. And Moriarty's like, well, I'm determined to step out of the holodeck because I am a living thing. And like, I deserve freedom, like outside of this construct. You know, mm-hmm. and Picard does do this feel it's very Dixon Hill. He takes a book off the shelf and throws it out of the mm-hmm. holodeck doors and you see it just disappear mm-hmm. because there are no hollow emitters out in the hallway. Mm-hmm. But despite that, Moriarty's like, but I'm different. I'm not a book. I'm like a living, breathing thing. And so he steps out and I'm like, oh, God, he's about to disappear. Girl, he steps out and he doesn't vanish. And he just stares at them. And I wrote, oh, shit. That's what I and he's just like, I think therefore I am. See? And I, when when I saw that, and again, I've seen this a hundred times, right? But I'm watching it as like, as if it's my 99th time <laughs> only. And when I saw that, I was just like, wow, he's taking a big risk. And later on, we know he's not, but he's taking a big risk. If this, if this, you know, was the case when he just saw what happened to the book, why didn't he start with like a hand or a toe? Or something like right? that, you know, like, like stick you your lose, hand you out lose, and pull it back lose, in. You like an elbow. That's one thing, but. Yeah, you know? you know what I mean? Because they always show, like, he when when Picard threw the book, the book disappeared because the whole thing went out of the, away from the hollow emitters. But whenever somebody sticks their arm out, their arm disappears. But when they pull their arm back, their arm reappears. Yeah. So he, he wouldn't have lost anything if he just kind of tested that a little bit. But to yes. just throw his whole person out, I was like, what are you doing? Like, you could lose all of you. But he was very much like, I, I have nothing to lose. So what? I have nothing to lose, which I guess is true. I guess um, it's true. And maybe if you've been living in hellish, solitary I, confinement yeah. for four years, you're this like, it do- doesn't matter mm-hmm. what I need to do. But you're right. You're right. Like, start with a finger. Start with, like, a toe. Yes. Start with or something like, that you Like, can the tail of your without. coat or something that's not even going to hurt. Like, just start. Th- you're right. He really went for it. And that's when I remember the first time watching this episode, I distinctly remember being like, oh, Me no. Too. You know, because I was like, how... First of all, I thought he was one... gonna. I thought he was gonna disappear one hundred percent, and then he didn't. And you're like, uh, uh. and then what? you look at the, you look at Data, Reg, and Picard's faces, and they're just like their mouths are open. And you're like, yeah, mm-hmm. right? Like, huh? 
what? What we just what? said. Yeah. <laughs> so of course, Picard is like, okay, one, what the heck just happened? But two, let's get you to see our doctor because something insane has just happened and we need to check it out. And so I he's love like, that Data's first reaction was security to the holodeck. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Are you going to throw him back in the holodeck or what's the plan here? Because if he's like a hologram, we don't know what he's made of or Mm-mm. how he works. What if he's like an electricity being who can like stop your heart with this air? So- I don't know. Like, Ex- thank you. I don't know. Exactly. I just like security. I'm not so sure. I mean, they're not a crack shot at the best of times. <laughs> I think really data, you might be enough for this situation. <laughs> but anyway, right. Moriarty already can outsmart you, but like, he's still a human and you have like the strength of like a thousand. Men. So Android. like, you're yeah. probably okay. You're probably okay. But yes, he, he does. He does consent to go to the, to sick bay to get a scan by Beverly. And I do love that when he sees security, he says, policemen, I'd know them in any century. And I was like, wow, that's actually <laughs> really, that was such a great throwaway line mm-hmm. and really that's memorable. Yeah, it was a great touch. So Beverly's like, uh, he's like normal. Like all of his scans are coming up normal on top of which his molecules don't seem to be losing any cohesion. So even maybe this is a slow burn, right? Maybe it'd take an hour for him to disappear, like some back to the future level stuff. But it's like, no, he's not losing any cohesion. And so I love that Picard. I love that Picard basically becomes like the liaison here where it's like, okay, I need to stop whatever I'm doing. And focus on this. So he takes Moriarty with him to 10 forward. So there's because just Moriarty... trail of old books <laughs> in the hallway. <laughs> where totally. he's running to sick bay. Running to right? Right? <laughs> um, Oh, one of the things I totally forgot to even mention, Moriarty does say, like, now that I'm free, I, like, I just want to explore. Like, can we go above deck? Like, what sail, you know, what sea are we sailing? And that's where I actually was caught up by that because I thought he had figured out in elementary dear data that it was a starship i didn't realize that he still thought it was like a clipper ship of some sort or something right because they did say the ship I think, yes in that episode i don't think they said they explained much in that episode like a starship yeah so he's like can we go above deck weather permitting of course and i love that picard's like i there's some stuff i need to tell you so he takes him <laughs> to 10 forward and that's when he looks out of the windows of 10 forward and sees the stars and he's like Oh my gosh. Like imagine Cherise, you think you're aboard like a train and it turns out you're on a freaking starship flying through space. Like, yeah. Or like a submarine or like in the middle of the earth or something. Yes. Like Like you think you're somewhere. Yes. If anybody's read Project Hail Mary, it's that kind of vibe where this guy wakes up thinking he's in a hospital and he's very much not. And you're like, oh God, like your entire paradigm is now shifted. Yeah. That's got to be so disorienting. And something I thought about in this scene and then there's another similar scene at the end of this episode is I was mm-hmm. just like, if that was me, I think I would really, really freak out. I mean, he does say, wow, we're adrift in the heavens, but he's like awed by that. I would be yeah. panicked by that. Where's the ground where like, there would be some, where's my agoraphobia because, or agoraphobia because um, you're who, who lives in space? Like his concept is being on yeah. earth very securely. There's, there was no satellite imagery at the time. so. For him to be in space and just see blackness everywhere, I feel like would be really, really scary and like disorienting. And and then also the feeling that they're adrift, which is what he thought. He was like, well, we're just floating. And then Picard was like, oh, no, we're not adrift. We have engines. We're like, we're actually steering through space. Yeah, Yeah, we have propulsion. We're, We're moving purposefully through space. But just this idea of 
being so exposed. It's kind of like, you know, being unconscious and waking up and you're in the bottom of a real ship and then you come on deck and you're in the middle of the ocean and there's no land. Like I would freak out because I'd be like, where, where, huh? What? Like, where are we? Where's the ground? Mm -hmm. Where's the land? Where's the people? Where's the buildings? Like I would freak out. So I don't know why he didn't freak out, but he didn't. He was really odd, which it is amazing. I don't know how long it would take me to get to that point of being like, wow, this is amazing. (laughs) I think probably a long time. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree with you. I think you're right too. thinking about like the time period that Moriarty is from. We have the Hubble telescope. We've been seeing beautiful things out of the James Webb telescope. Um, that's, you know, recent pictures have been published that we have a better understanding now, still not a great understanding, but a better understanding now of like what space looks like as opposed to the Conan Doyle universe, which is just like inky black star, you know, inky black sky, stars Mm -hmm. and planets. But beyond that, you know, but you're right to imagine waking up in just a black void and you can't get out of the black void. It's like, that is really terrifying as a, as an idea. But, you know, I, I do love that Moriarty is like, I just want to like live. That's all I'm asking for, which is so little and so reasonable. Yeah. Because Picard's like, I think I should let you know, that crime is just as unacceptable today as it was in mm-hmm. your day. And it's a lot harder to get away with and you will be punished. So just so you know, Mr. Best Criminal in the Universe, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> we don't we don't play that anymore today than we did back then. And he's yeah. just like crime. He's like, I'm done with that whole life. I want a new life. I want to rewrite my own story, which is a really powerful idea coming from a fictional character who gains sentience to say, now I'm writing the story. I'm telling yes. you. It's, just, it's, it's, a, it's really cool. It is really powerful. And you're right. Like James Moriarty was written that way. That's not necessarily who he is. I mean, it's who he is, but he was he was created that right. way, right? right? This is his programming, right? So him having the choice to say, I'm changing my programming. I don't, I have no interest in these little petty crimes. Like I just want to live and explore. This is yeah. a person who, let's not forget, he's a, I believe he was a mathematics professor. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. So it's like, this is a person whose like life is, know. is, I'm pr- yeah, I feel like it is. This is a person whose life is dedicated to the pursuit of like knowledge and information. Th- what better fresh start could you possibly have than to be like, not only am I a man, you know, 500 years out of time, like mm-hmm. forward. So now technology is like so much better than it was. Our mm-hmm. understanding of things is so much better than it was. I also have like the ability and the means to like just travel the universe and like explore. So, oh my God. Yeah. And win, 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 like- win. I'll give you books, like I'll give you, like I'll give you access to update yourself on the knowledge. And I will drop some gems here for anyone who has not read all the Sherlock Holmes original stories, not all the spinoffs and 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 you know reboots and stuff, but any of those original stories. Um, there was exactly one novel that had Moriarty, and or one story that had Moriarty, and um, you don't know anything about him really. He doesn't interesting. He doesn't speak. You don't see his face. He's just this shadowy kingpin that you don't see. And actually, you find out about him in a like flashback style where Sherlock is telling Watson a story about how he died. And he's mm. saying because everyone thought he died, um, but he didn't die. But everyone thought he died because Moriarty tried to kill him. So Sherlock Holmes is just telling this whole story of like he was such a bad man and he was involved in everything. And he was like the spider and everyone was on the web and all this different stuff. And then he describes finally Moriarty finally catching up with him out on the moors. And they had this fight to death over a fight to the death on the edge of a cliff. And Moriarty slipped off. And Sherlock is that the Reichenbach fall? That is, is that- what that's what the episode's called in, in uh, the BBC okay. version. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, 
but yeah, that's the, that's the, the, the name idea. of the place. That's the name of the place. Yeah. It was, yes. it was Reichenbach was the city or whatever, but, um, Sherlock almost falls, but he kind of like catches himself at the last second and pulls himself oh. up and then he disappears for like years. And what he's doing is dismantling Moriarty's whole like conglomerate organization. But all I have to say is at no point do, does Watson or anybody else actually meet Moriarty. There's no, there's not a character there, which is so interesting. So in all the reboots and all the other stories and all the so shows fascinating. where Moriarty's got like a personality and he's like, you know, uh, got a face and he's got a job and all these things, like that was all fleshed out basically as fanfic. So I thought it was really interesting to see Moriarty at all on the show, but especially here where he, then he talks about introducing this new character where he says, there's a character named Count- the Countess Regina who is such, it's such an unfortunate name, but that's her name. And, um, and he's like, <laughs> Regina he's like, Bartholomew. Ugh, yes. So bad. I know. Yeah. So and, now I just call her the Countess Bartholomew going forward. Oh, that's a good idea. The Countess. <laughs> let's call her that. So the Countess. And he's like, you know, this is the love of my life. And I, what's the point of exploring if I'm all alone, all this stuff. Um, so obviously there's no such character as that in, in the books because Moriarty's barely I wondered about himself. that. And I was going to ask you. Okay. Yeah, Moriarty's barely a character. So there's no like friends of his or loves of his or kids of his or any of that. Mm. However, he does say in this episode, which I only caught for the very first time this time, that this character was created by Data um, in a previous holodeck rendition before Moriarty got sentience. So he said it was created by your Data and she was created by your Data for me to love. So this character Uh. was created in this universe for him. Which is really sweet and really beautiful. And I love that there's like a love story because you're like, wow, even this like masterminding criminal who's kind of a monster can love someone. So yeah. that's a relief. That is really nice. And I and I really, really love like what a beautiful job they do with the Countess mm-hmm. and what a wonderful match she is. So we can get into that in a little bit. But yes, he does, t- you know, Moriarty does tell Picard like... I really would like to bring the countess like off the holodeck as well, because then she's, she's my light. She's like my life partner, you know, and I want to explore with her. And Picard does say like, I would love to do that. And we still have no idea how this one miracle came to pass, let alone figuring out how to make it happen again. Also with what just happened, you technically count as a new life form. So it, is it morally and ethically acceptable for us to create like more of these, like without really knowing more because your cohesion might fall apart. You might, who knows. Right. But I really, really love this scene where they're in 10 forward. And we're only at like minute three of the episode, by the way, but like (laughs) there's just so much to talk about. If you want a quick one, catch us next week where we have like two things to say about that horrible episode. Literally. It's going to be like a 10 minute, Heat fest, and then we're going to sign off probably. But anyway, it's I love seeing Daniel Davis and Sir Patrick Stewart acting opposite each other yeah. in this mm-hmm. scene. The, not only is it, I mean, it just feels so wonderful to watch because think of the setting too. You have Moriarty in his period clothing. You mm-hmm. have Captain Picard in his like modern Starfleet uniform. Mm-hmm. One one is a man of the past. One is a man of the present. And they're trying to find some ground. And there's a great deal of respect between them. Mm-hmm. And I just really like, it's one of my favorite scenes and it's very downplayed. It's not anything like done for like crazy special effects, nothing, but mm-hmm. it's just, you're just watching two really, really phenomenal actors act. And I yeah, just, I love it. 
It's lovely. I could not agree more. I, I absolutely love seeing them as well. And it feels very elevated. Like they're very polite and very respectful, like you said. Even yeah. when they disagree, even when they're mad at each other. Earlier when Picard was like, I promise you, we can't get you off the holodeck. Moriarty was like, I don't believe anything else you say. I don't believe anything you say anymore. And mm-hmm. even with that dismissiveness, he was still really like polite and professional. I don't know. There was no like, there's no like hard feelings. It's just like, yes. here's how it is. Here's what's up. Like when Picard was like, you know, we will throw you in jail if you commit a crime. He's like, okay, I get it. You know, it's just yeah. very like, it's it's not charged. It's very pro- professional and like respectful, which I love. In the next scene, we're in the observation lounge where Picard does take this question to his senior staff. So he doesn't mm-hmm. just say, we're not going to do it. Forget about it. Get on yeah. with your life, Moriarty. He doesn't do that. He goes like, I, I don't think that's right. But he does say, I will do the best I can. You know, I'll look into it, whatever. And next thing you know, he's meeting with the senior staff to talk about this this question. And they all have a lot of good points. Like Troy, for example, points out that Moriarty's existence is their responsibility. And mm-hmm. so it's kind of like, well, we have his life in our hands and it's up to us. Like he, if, if he can't live without the countess, like it's up to us to basically meet his needs. He depends on us. We've created him. We're responsible for him. And Beverly points out, yeah, but we don't even know what walked off the holodeck. We don't even know mm-hmm. what he is exactly. He's scanning as mostly human. There's a few irregularities, yeah. but like you don't go from being light and force fields to being a human. We don't even know what's going on. It's totally irresponsible to do it a second time. Mm-hmm. And they're kind of all like, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a really sticky situation, but the big idea is we don't want to just be creating sentient beings left and right out of the holodeck. Like that, that feels like a horrible plan. So yeah. Picard's like, all right, it's agreed. We won't do it. We will just tell him, um, sorry, but no. And that's the decision. So, yeah. And that kind of does, ha- yeah, that happens because Picard comes to see Moriarty at the holodeck and he's what he actually says was, give us time to figure out what's going on here. That way we can minimize the risks of bringing the Countess to you, which I think is very sensible. Mm-hmm. But if you've lived the last four years in suspended animation with some disembodied consciousness blips mm-hmm. here and there, when the same person promised, like, give us time, we can figure out what's going on here. Yeah. I would also be like, I hear what you're saying, and I'm not going to do that. Because yeah. you've already told me this once, and look at what happened. I mm-hmm. literally was waiting for four years. Um, That's fair, so, and I get and he, that he really was like, I have to, I have to put the power in my own hands because I can't trust you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which Picard, you know, Picard is not wrong, but neither is Moriarty. I think in this situation, I agree. so you I know, agree. we cut to we cut to the bridge. These two gas giant planets are starting to coalesce. It's all looking. And really all I cool. wrote in my notes was glorious. <laughs> We're Swirly. five hours away. Yeah, I just wrote glorious in all caps. We're five hours away from the birth of a new star, and as usual, we're way too close this phenomenon way too fucking close <laughs> there is not enough shield in the known universe okay to protect okay listen maybe Can back we... off a little bit we got some really good cameras i need like... you to take three hundred thousand kilometers back buddy just yes. three hundred thousand kilometers how about you shoot shoot some probes and we'll check it out Get after the probes. stars form. you know we saw this we saw this in the movie twister okay they threw some <laughs> probes in there and then they collected the data Nobody had to get hurt, okay? Can we just <laughs> take a page out of Twister's book and all we get need some is a in lot there. of aluminum cans. That's all we need. A lot of Pepsi. Everybody start <laughs> drinking your Pepsi now. We need these cans. This yeah. episode is not sponsored by Pepsi. No. <laughs> I can't even remember the last time I had a Pepsi. Anyway, the point is, so yeah, you're right. They're way, way, way too close. So 
you know, they're like, oh, let's get some probes in there, which I, they must have heard us. And, Worf, <laughs> you know, Worf is ordered to get some probes up, but the controls start going haywire. And we find out it's like, it sounds like very 90s dial up. And we find out that command functions have been rerouted. And they're like, rerouted to what? And Moriarty steps on the bridge and announces like he's had no choice but to take control of the Enterprise. And I'm like, this is what happens when you screw around with a super with a criminal mastermind. Yeah. You guys kind of brought that on yourselves. Criminal. Not going to lie. Mastermind. Two sentence, two words you don't want next to each other. Mm-hmm. Okay. Nope. Not on your ship. but so he takes over the ship which is um like shouldn't be a surprise really to anyone because that's what he did the first time he also did this he took over with a lever yeah yes with a lever in his like cranking it yeah it was so great it was this old 1880s laboratory in some like garage or something And it was just, it was great. Steampunk heaven, yeah. It was. So really, is anybody surprised? Turns out everyone's surprised. And (laughs) Boriardi's just like, yeah, I I had no choice. I had to do this until you comply with my demands. And Worf, in natural form, pulls out his phaser, because that's Worf's thing. And (laughs) and Moriarty's just like, if you kill me, then no one will be able to release the command codes. And Worf is like, okay. Which actually, this is a little bit of... um, of a, of a growth moment for Worf, because usually he just shoots. So this time he did pause, which gave him time to, like, not shoot. So that was good. Um, and he then d- Picard- He either does shoot or he gets backhanded into the wall. So, like, both of those are not good options, Worf. So, so he yeah. had a much better episode. He had a much better time this episode where neither of those things happen. Um, Picard points out that this whole vessel is going to be destroyed in five hours if they don't move the ship. So it's really important that Moriarty gives the command codes back and we will definitely, for sure, pinky promise, work on this problem. And Moriarty's just kind of like, you know, I feel like a deadline works magic to just really focus the mind. So let's mm-hmm. just say you have five hours to solve this problem. And you get sure the do. Off the holodeck. And he's just like, well, you know, you don't want to die. Like, none of us want to die. I'm sure you don't want to die either. And Moriarty's just like, well, I'll take my chances. Since I'm fictional anyways, I have very little to lose. And you're like, dang it, nothing to, a criminal mastermind with nothing to lose? You're really screwed. Worst three phrases to put back to back to back in a mm-hmm. sentence. Like, honestly, you're right. Because I love the, I love the, like, the flip that happens here. Because when Worf is about to fire, Moriarty's like, if you kill me, there'll be nobody to, like, release the ship. So, mm. you'll all and die. then... And then Picard is like, but if you kill all of us, then you also don't get to live your freedom. And and it doesn't work this time somehow. It's like, yeah, but I'm not living now anyway. So it doesn't matter. It's like, dang it. Like, I, totally, I totally could imagine Picard being like, like just being a little upset that basically same like, logic checkmate. didn't work. Didn't, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It didn't work at all. So this is when Picard is like, okay, Barkley, Data, Jordy, get to work on theorizing how to get the Countess safely out of the holodeck because... Apparently, this is what we're doing right now until we can get the ship control back and like get the hell away from. That's you why you just launched the probe. If he, if they would have been super far away from the star formation in the first place, this none of this would have happened, Picard. Yeah, yep. Or they would have they would have had a lot more time to like negotiate. But here they have five hours and counting. What <laughs> I love about Picard is his, you know, like he knows when he's beaten. He knows when it's time to be like, all right, fine, give them control, or all right, fine, do what they want. He knows when to and when not to negotiate with terrorists, basically. Sometimes he's like, all right, give them what they want. They've got hostages. And sometimes he's like, even if they have hostages, we can't give them what they want. He really is Mm -hmm. is attuned and 
enough of a diplomat to know that. So I really like how Picard is this diplomat because you're like, you can tell he's biding his time, but you can also see he's between a rock and a hard place. And he's like, let's just just do it. Like, go look into it right now. So they do. Um, Data suggests maybe using the transporter because Mm -hmm. it does trans, it does kind of take matter and turn it into question mark and then turn it back into matter. Yeah. Yeah, sure. We'll do that. We'll take matter into energy and then energy into matter. So they're like, well, maybe it can take, you know, light and electricity and turn it into matter. And Jordy points out that there's no cohesion, which to me makes all the sense in the world. It's like light, even though it acts as a particle and a wave, you can't hold it in your hand. Mm-hmm. Like you can't. Mm-hmm. And so these these hollow emitters make things appear real and solid. It doesn't make them real and solid. Yeah. Yes. It's just it's, it's just an it's illusion. The, it's the Coachella Tupac hologram. You know what I mean? Where it's like, wow, that looks really cool. That's not the same as a person. You're right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So anyways, that was the thought. And it was just like, you know, even hearing them say this and talking about the technology, you're just like, yeah, this isn't going to work. <laughs> like this is never gonna work. Not not but even they're really trying. Close, but okay. They are, and you know what? They are between a rock and a hard place, and time is a ticket. So it's like, well, we're gonna have to try something. So Barkley comes to the holodeck to set up the transport pattern enhancers and finds the countess in the sitting room of 221B Baker Street. Why she's at Baker Street, I don't know, but it doesn't matter. And that's the matter. other thing is that Moriarty's always at Baker Street, which he never came to Baker Street. Well, which is Sherlock's but hangout, but okay. it is. All right. It is. And it doesn't make sense except for the fact that we don't know where Moriarty lives because he never had a place or like mm. backstory in the actual story. And Baker Street's what we think about for Sherlock and the episode starts in Baker Street. So it's kind of like, okay, we get to keep the set yeah. and this is a set we've all seen. And it's like, it feels really comfortable. If it was some other yes. random place, it's you'd be recognizable. Like, you kind of be like, what's the point of that? Yeah, but being yeah. it's recognizable. You're like, and you're right. They didn't have to build two sets, which is like, okay. But the actress who plays the Countess is named Stephanie Beecham. And I think she was just so perfectly cast in this role. Mm-hmm. She's like kind of soft and feminine in a lot of ways, but she has like a real toughness about her. Um, a sense of adventure for sure. A sense of adventure, which I really, really love. Somebody who's going to be a great counterpart to Moriarty, who has to be able to like rival him intellectually. But mm-hmm. also one of the things that the casting director did talk about was that it's so hard to make anybody look alluring or sexy in Victorian clothing. And she just looked like such a knockout that they were mm-hmm. like, we definitely have to have her. Um, so I love that they brought her in. And I didn't remember if we had seen her in elementary due data. But then when I saw her in this week's episode, I was like, oh, yeah. Oh, no, this is like totally new. Um, mm-hmm. She just kills it. And I also love that Moriarty as a character. I don't know. What was he like? mid 50s or something i'm not super sure but they didn't get like a 22 year old female to like play the role where it's like the the woman looked like she was in her 40s maybe late 40s like i'm not she looked age appropriate yeah she Mm -hmm. looked age appropriate which i really like because here's a woman who's not 21 and who's stunningly beautiful and Mm -hmm. i feel like hollywood keeps forgetting that once we're not 21 we can still be beautiful but like we're not told that Right. So I yeah. loved, I loved, I really loved the casting of Stephanie Beecham in that role. They just, they killed it. Yeah. She was great. Her dress was super fun. And oh, I, so I love this story she's telling. So as Barclay's coming in and setting up those pattern enhancers around a chair that they're going to test sending to the, to the transporter. See, you don't start with, you don't start with the countess. You start, you with, start a chair with a chair mm-hmm. or a toe, Moriarty. Or a toe. or a toe, buddy. Just a toe. But yeah. So, so they're using a chair and, um, and as Barclay's like setting things up, he's kind of ignoring 
the Countess, which makes sense because if this was a normal holodeck character, the holodeck character would not be aware of the pattern enhancers or anything that didn't fit in their yeah. programmed world. They wouldn't even see it. Yes. So, but um, the Countess is all like, oh, what's that for? Oh, is that because you're going to take us out of the holodeck? Oh, this is going to be great. We're going to go to the real world. And Barclay's just like, what? What? Huh? What? You she's know about so ready. That? You know about the real world? You know about this? You know about that? And she's just like, yes, I love exploring. I grew up in Africa or not grew up in Africa, but she was like, I went to Africa once with my uncle or something like that. And she was like, I got to wear trousers the whole time. And I mm. thought that was so funny because I was like, oh my gosh, you know, women in 1880 were all doing those effing corsets and stuff like that. And I was wondering, when did women start to wear pants? And it was like not some big social taboo. I don't know, but it was quite a long time after I 1880. Do. I do. Ooh, okay. It was because I because I'm a big history buff. Um, women didn't start wearing, if we want to think about like in the US, obviously like different countries kind of start things at different times. But in the US, it really wasn't until the late 40s to early 50s, 1950s, that women started wearing pants and even then it was still seen as this like disgraceful thing Uh so the whole corset with the bustle and the big hat and the really tiny little you know um, wrists and neck you know collar that was all i mean for her to be able to wear pants is huge is huge also i love the fact that she went to africa where it's like that's that's where it's practical to wear pants right yes, there. Right. You know that's what I mean? Like the streets of London I, stuff doesn't make any sense. Doesn't make any sense at all. One, because if you're out in the bush, you can't be running around in formal. All Victorian. that stuff is going to get snagged. All of it's going to get snagged. Walk. You're going to move. And it's going to be hot. So yeah. hot wearing all those layers of clothing. Because those things oh, yeah. have like piece after piece after piece to make the whole look. Yeah. 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 I mean, it, it really make no wasn't sense. until it really wasn't until between 50 to 70 years after the countess's time that women started wearing pants regularly. Um, Which is, which is insane. I'm so thankful. Like right now I'm sitting here in yoga pants recording this. And I'm like, imagine if I had to be in a dress just to, just to like be in my house by myself. It's like, Mm -hmm. Oh my God. Or just to like run to Starbucks or something. That'd be so annoying. Absolutely not. Just to go get a coffee. Well, I will tell you one of the, one of my favorite, all-time favorite shows is Downton Abbey. It's a great comfort watch for me. And it, at the time of this recording, it's it's January, it's wintertime, it's chilly. Um, even for SoCal, it feels chilly. So it's a comfort watch. There are so many scenes in Downton Abbey where the characters are out like doing like one character has to do like road work, like lay mm-hmm. down tar and stuff. He's in a three-piece suit because there wasn't anything made for that kind of work Mm. like women who had to like ride a bicycle to go down to the village to like send a message or whatever like they had like corsets and heels and everything and had to like ride in dresses which i'm like gosh how the hell do you do that such a health hazard it totally it it totally is a hazard right so when i i'm so thankful that there is clothing today for us to like i just came from walking my dog on the beach and and i got a starbucks and i was like okay yoga pants a hoodie and like some tennis shoes done right like you don't have to spend an hour putting an outfit together to be somewhere completely impractical so for the countess to be so excited about these pants is like a hundred percent like that's not an option for her in any other part of her life it shows such great like sense of adventure she wasn't bothered by it she's like my mother took to her bed thinking i'd be bit by titsy flies like all of that like Sure, things that moms would totally worry about. Mm-hmm. And she was like, I thought it was grand. Like, she just had the best <laughs> time with it. And I love this character so much for that. She's so great. And Barclay's just like, how do you know all of this? And just as has he's asking her that, Moriarty comes in and goes, oh, because I told her. I gave her consciousness. So now she's just like me. And Barclay's like, what? Didn't we, didn't we already have that conversation about not bringing other life forms? He didn't say all that. But 
I'm sure on the inside, he was like, how could you have done something like this? But Moriarty was like, yeah, it was easy. I just said computer, make her conscious or whatever. And yeah. so it did that. Also, like, I thought we agreed that I'm not playing by your rules. So I'm going to do whatever I want. Right. Okay. If you recall, I'm the boss. You may have forgotten. Yeah. Uh, but that's actually why you're here. You're here because I'm in charge now. So 100%. I will make 10 conscious holodeck characters if I want to. And you're just like, man, get this, get this guy off the ship before he does any more damage. Um, but he wasn't going to, he wasn't, he, he really, even though he is like a criminal mastermind, like I really get what he's, I get what he's doing and why yeah. he's doing it. And he's just episode. trying to get some it freedom. It doesn't feel unreasonable. He wants freedom. He wants the love of his life. He wants to explore. He wants to write his own story. That is what we all want. So, yeah. I mean, it, it was not unreasonable. He went to extreme measures to get it, but he felt like that was his only option, which honestly it was, he would still be in that buffer today. With trying to figure out how he could walk around the ship. So, yeah, did what he had to do. So, back to this transport attempt. Like, they tried transporting the chair off the holodeck, but it doesn't work. Like, the chair has somehow lost its cohesion as soon as the transport pattern cycled. And so Data is, like, in the in the transporter room. And so he's like, well, Barkley, you stay there. Like, I'm going to start pulling up the transport log in order to attempt to, like, learn more. But the computer doesn't seem to have any record of the transport. So this is where, like, the music is kind of cueing us in. That's like, something's wrong. It's almost as if the transport never happened. Like, why are the logs, like, empty? Mm-hmm. So Jordy has Picard come down to main engineering to try to reinstate, reinstate the voice authorization commands. Um, and so, you know, Picard is like, Picard Alpha, whatever, whatever. Mm-hmm. And it seems to work, but then it doesn't. And they're like, is Moriarty, like, ahead of us, like, five seconds at a return? Or, like, what is going on? And so as they're puzzling over this, this is where I feel like the the episode gets even better because data comes by and he's like stop right here i know exactly what's going on we are still on the holodeck and this is where you're like what right this because is now data is sherlock but is data but he's data right so professor moriarty did not perform a miracle by leaving the holodeck we're all still on the holodeck he created his own enterprise within the enterprise almost as if it were like a ship within a container but like (laughs) (laughs) it's like a ship inside a glass container (laughs) yeah like a see-through like a like a uh, like a wine container Container. yeah (laughs) so the only people who are real here are are you good wine container that's so funny yeah go ahead ahead. (laughs) so the only people who are real are picard data and barkley because they were the original three who came to visit moriarty at baker street Mm-hmm. So as this is happening, we start seeing Jordy, who's not real, start behaving like a holodeck character where he just kind of like shuts down or stops reacting or talking. Yeah, he becomes like he, a robot. He has nothing to say or do or contribute unless someone talks to him directly. Exactly. Exactly. So here's here's something. <laughs> Data proves his point by taking off his comm badge and throwing it at the warp nacelle, which it, it's the holodeck wall trick. Like it causes the wall to shimmer and reveal itself to be the holodeck. Mm-hmm. And I just thought... Couldn't you have just done that from the beginning? How about let's start with that and then go into the explanation? <laughs> but whatever. It's like, my we're thinking now was... within a holodeck, within a holodeck, within the <laughs> ship. This is crazy. My thinking was, as he's talking, Jordy is just sitting there ear hustling. He's like two two steps away from them. Like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Really? Right. Hol- you don't say. I was like, maybe step to the side a little bit before you <laughs> reveal this to Picard. Like, because if all of these, if all these are characters and Moriarty is also a character, maybe he like knows what all the other characters know or something. Yeah. 
Like how far right. is it feels a little bit, it feels a fresh. little matrixy, right? Where it's like, mm-hmm. if a citizen is sees anything, then like the agents can see it. Yeah. 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 Which eventually Picard does say, hey, Jordy, can you give us a minute? And then Jordy just walks into some random doorway in the back. Yeah. Um, and you're like, oh, I wish he would have said that before Data gave the whole explanation, but mm-hmm. whatever. So Data explains it and Picard's like, oh, crap. And then he uses his comm badge and he's like, uh, number one, where am I? And Riker's like, you're in engineering. And he's like, dang it. Our comm badges are also tied into the holodeck so that yes. we can't even communicate out. Like everything is tied into the holodeck. And so, and then he goes, Data, I just gave Jordy my command codes because I thought it was the real Jordy and he was going to reinstate everything. And Data's like, you may have just given Moriarty the means to actually take over the real Enterprise like we thought he'd been doing this whole time. Mm-hmm. And and right earlier to prove his point, he threw something to Jordy and Jordy caught it with the wrong hand. And so that yeah. was like a throwback to the beginning of the episode to be like, see, it's the wrong hand. Here we are. Um, yes. So you're just like, oh man, like, if if data would have come to this conclusion like three minutes earlier, I know to stop Picard from giving the command codes because it turns out they weren't actually in any danger, but now they are. Now they are because now you've given him the means to take over. Now my question for you is: Does this idea give you any discomfort? Because it feels like a dream within a dream. You're in a holodeck within a holodeck within the ship. Like you don't know, you can't escape. To me, this is a very, very scary. Like I would be terrified. Um, and it feels like that episode. We haven't broken it down yet. I don't remember which one it which one it's called, but it's the one where uh Riker has the like cut on his head, and every mm-hmm. time he like goes to manage to like sick bay to get it fixed, like yeah. Beverly fixed, and then it bleeds again and then fracture or something like that. Something like that, right? Where it's something. like he never knows like where his reality really is. And I for me, oh, that's no, it's always been eye. like what's it called? Sorry, I'm getting distracted by thinking of the name of the episode. That's yes. okay. That one always bug- bugs you because he doesn't know what's real. Yes. And that's what this feels like. But I don't I wanted to know what you thought about that. Like, does this scare no, you or is it more this, just like mm, Let's just figure this out. This doesn't scare me at all. Like that episode with Riker is really disturbing because he keeps waking up in a mental institution and then waking up on the ship and then waking up in a mental institution. But I think if he woke up like in a palace and then woke up on the ship, it wouldn't have the same creepy effect. Mm. Right. If one of his realities wasn't him being tortured or something. Um, This doesn't bother me, actually, because to me, it's just like a puzzle. It's like, okay, it's all a program. So at some point we can dismantle the program or the program will end or something like there Mm -hmm. to me, there feels like a solution. What's a lot more scary to me about this episode is drifting through space when you have no concept of being in space. To me, that's a lot more scary because you can't escape that. There's nowhere to go. Like, you're just you're in the middle of nothing. But this to me, I'm like, no, if if Moriarty can do this, two can play at this game. Thank God we have data in here with us. Because Thank we, God. Because holodeck created... data wouldn't be as good. Yeah. No, holodeck data would be a waste of time. He'd be like holodeck Jordy and holodeck Worf. Um, but to have data here, you're like, at least data, Moriarty was created as a counterpoint to data. So we know that data is like equivalent to him in, yes. I don't know, deductive skills, reasoning, something. So I would feel like together we can figure this out. And they have Reg. I'd rather have Jordy, but they have Reg. So together, yeah. I think the three of them could find a solution to what I perceive to the, to be an engineering challenge mm. more than like a moral challenge or like, yeah, I don't know. We also well, haven't I mean, established whether or not the safeties are on or off. So there oh, that's is, true. which it doesn't matter because Moriarty's not being sadistic, but there's an episode of Voyager where one of the bad guys reprograms the holodeck and two characters get trapped in it and the safeties are off. And she's, she's programmed every single character on the fake ship 
to like torture these two people. So oh when they God. go to when they go to sick bay, the doctor like you know injects them with stuff, or when they go to like the you know Ooh. the kitchen, the cook tries to like stab them or whatever. So like to me, that scenario is absolutely terrifying. Yeah. Um, because there's real like, harm. Yeah. Right. Because they're trying to harm you. This I don't feel like Moriarty is trying to harm anybody. He just wants freedom. And there's got to be a solution to this. This is true. I think for me, what seems scary is just not knowing what reality is. That to me is like the scariest part. But yeah. on on the real bridge, Riker and Jordy are demanding Moriarty to to tell him like what they what what he's done and why. And Moriarty assures Riker that like Picard and Data and Barkley are safe for now. And he's like, "Here's what the original three have done with the transporter. Now you try it." And as a show of power. Moriarty remotely raises the warp core temperature to some dangerous level. He kind of does the lever trick again. Yeah. Um, and I was He's like, a okay, pony, well, but it's a very good trick. He is. And I <laughs> actually, my notes I wrote, seems like a leopard can't change its spots. <laughs> so it's like, you're just resorting to like what you know how to do best criminal mastermindery to get what you want. Right. Absolutely. So my question is this, why didn't Riker and the security team just go down to transport, like to holodeck three and just terminate the program? They couldn't get through because of the um, uh, oh, force fields. That's right. He put force fields up. That's right. Now but they did think so, about that. <laughs> they yeah, because it would have been like just go down there and pull the effing plug and be done oh. with this. Like the the yellow and black walls would reappear. Picard would be like, "Thank God," and then on with our mission. Well, but here's the other thing: is that Picard gave him the command codes, so now he controls the You're whole right. ship. So they can't yeah. unplug it because he controls the ship with, I guess, his brain. You know, since you can't Which, uh, also, things. I feel like if you're the flagship of the of the enterprise, if you're like the flagship of the Federation, you probably need some like two factor, yeah, yeah, some two factor <laughs> authentication or something. Because just Send being a like code to Picard's phone, just, and if that code isn't put in in 15 seconds, it's not really him. Something right where it's like because if you were just like computer Janeway Alpha Pi with any voice, they'd be like, okay, now Andrea has control of the voy- of Voyager. No. No, that's not how that's supposed to work at all. I was like, it does have to match their voice. So it does have to be that person's voice, which is how Data took over the ship when he went to go find his dad. Remember, he he matched Picard's voice. But but Moriarty did it from being the ship. Like, he controls the ship from the inside, from the computer side. Well, I guess guess you could just, I mean, if we really think, wow, we're getting really to the details here. But I guess if you just have a recording. Because it shouldn't be this easy. It It shouldn't be this easy to take over the ship. Because like this is a huge security risk. Yeah, like you give me like you give me your pin number and I just take over your whole house. Like what? (laughs) But whatever. Okay, doesn't matter who. Picard goes to see the Countess to try to reason with her, Um, and he's like, "Look, I'm just going to level with you. If we we found that maybe if we uncouple the transporters Heisenberg compensators and allow them to rescramble randomly, we can beam a holodeck object or person off the grid without any loss of cohesion. But I will tell you this." I cannot and will not do this unless the professor releases the command of the ship. I have over a thousand lives to protect, so I have to look to their safety first. And I love that the Countess is gracious mm-hmm. and charming and intelligent and is following along. And then when she realizes she's over a barrel, she's like, I see. Well, I'll do the best I can then. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. I love that she doesn't, that's the non holodecky part of her. That's just like, lovely, Picard. <laughs> Beautiful, right like she's pissed because she knows like he's holding he's holding her over our ledge mm-hmm. it is you know made and she does say why that sounds like a threat and mm-hmm. he's just like i have lives to think about here it's more than just the two of you so yeah and yeah. i'm not gonna budge and it's just like yeah he's not so what are you gonna do 
Yes. Now, Moriarty, my boss. Moriarty tells the real Riker, he's like, look, blah, 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 Heisenberg compensators, get cracking, okay? And so right. because, because the countess tells Moriarty immediately, like when he comes in, yes. she tells him the whole story and she's like, that's what he said. And But James, you have to release the ship. You have to do it because when you release it, then he's going to give the codes or whatever. And mm-hmm. then Moriarty, so she doesn't know that he's playing this like holodeck inside a holodeck inside this a ship. This inception kind of game. game, yeah. Mm-hmm, this nesting dolls type game. So she has no idea. So he's just like, okay, trust me. He does, he does that whole thing that I hate it when they do this in movies, but whatever. It's, it's a trope for a reason where he's like, just trust me. There are things you don't understand, darling. Just trust me. Take so a minute like, and explain okay. it to me. Yeah. Right? I hate when I people mean, do that. If I it takes 30 seconds Heisen- to explain it. If I could just explain the Heisenberg compensators to you, you could explain your plan to me. Like, <laughs> it's not that hard, but whatever. Right. But you're right. right. That's right. So Moriarty refuses... Uh, I'm sorry. So he tells the real Riker, like, this is what you guys need to do. And we're running out of time. So the team is like, fine, just do it. They run the transport and manage to get Moriarty and the Countess off the holodeck. So they're like, I don't know how. Heisenberg compensators, whatever. It works. Give us the ship back. Like, we need, like we're about to be swallowed up into this new star that's I think at this not point physically possible to form. They're 20, <laughs> that's not possible. They're 25 <laughs> minutes away from destruction at this point. So we've gone from five hours to 25 minutes. Classic. So yes. it's like, all right, give us the code so we can just back up a little bit. That's all we need. And of course, just, Moriarty's yeah. like, no. You're like, what? Come yeah, he's on, like, man. one more, one more thing. I I want a shuttlecraft and we want to be allowed to leave. And I love that Riker's like, we don't have to fine, fine, just give him a goddamn shuttlecraft. Like, get out of here. Like, <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't even finish his sentence, being like, there is no time. He just immediately is like, you don't understand. How- just get it done. Just give him a ship. Get out of here. <laughs> so he gets them a shuttlecraft and he's like, get the F off of this ship. And it's if cool you- too, because he's like, everything everything can be done with voice command. Like, you don't need to understand any of the buttons. Just the it answers to your voices. Just tell the computer what you want and it'll just do it. Mm-hmm. Smart, which is like cool. So, can I ask why do we ever use these buttons? Exactly. I mean, like, because even maybe cause, okay, so maybe because maybe because like if you're like in a in a really dicey situation and there isn't time to speak the commands, like it's faster to push the buttons. But otherwise, couldn't you okay, just? But really, because I'm thinking about planes, like airplanes now, pretty much run on autopilot. But the pilot and the copilot are there in case anything goes wrong. They can take over mm-hmm. control, and they can just like check and monitor and make sure that everything's doing what it's supposed to do. But they don't have to physically, you know, tilt the the plane every time there's a wind and yeah. all this stuff. Like, it does it by itself. Yeah. So I feel like if the entire shuttle could run by voice commands, we only need the buttons if if voice command breaks or so. Or if we need, like, if we need them, we could use them. But if everything can run by voice command, including evasive maneuvers, alpha three. Yeah. Like, what? what yeah. Why is everybody? I don't get it. Like, after that, I was just like, why don't we just do everything with voice command? It just would be a lot faster anyways we don't so he's like all right everything can be ran by voice command and and what i love is even in this like high pressure situation where riker's like having no fun he makes a recommendation for the first planet they should go and visit that would be a really I nice know. place for them to go i was like that's really and he says it all grudgingly he was like i recommend going to such and such place it's lovely yeah. or whatever <laughs> it's just like yeah it's basically the closest thing to Riza here. Mm-hmm. So just go there. Yeah, he didn't have to do that. He'd be like, get the hell off the ship. But he does. He's like, I, j- you might want to go check this one out. As soon as you're clear, we need the voice authorizations back. And of course, Moriarty's like, happy to, Commander. Goodbye. So off they go. They sail off into the sunset. They're so happy. 
Moriarty returns command of the ship back to the Enterprise and, and they're just like clutching each other and ready to go off. And the Countess is like, do you think we might go back to Earth one day? And he's like, anything for you, my dear. And I was like, yay. Okay. It's just really sweet. I really like that. And I was like, yeah, of course they're going to want to go back to Earth. Like that's their home. But the fact that they can explore the whole galaxy together. Oh my gosh. I just thought that was a really beautiful scene. Amazing. And it's like, oh, wait, the Enterprise is about to be destroyed. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's secondary. Who cares? Now, this is this for me. This for me is where the brain melting part starts happening. Picard steps into the shuttle bay and it's like, when did you get here, Picard? And commands the computer to stop simulation. So Riker and Worf disappear along with the shuttle bay. He's in the holodeck. So it's like, oh, wait, what? Like, how did you get to Riker? Okay. But then he walks out of that holodeck and ends that program, revealing that they were again on the holodeck. So it's like, wait, how? Hold on. How did you get to the second? Ho- like, my brain always falls apart at this point, And I always struggle <laughs> to, like, keep this straight. I really do. I just have a yeah. hard time with it. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. It's confusing. It's confusing. But he, like, ends all the programs. And then he goes, um, he comes over to Riker. And Riker's like, we just got all the controls back on the ship suddenly. And we're backing the ship away from the star, which is going to form in, like, two minutes at this point. Yeah. yeah. So Picard's like. Awesome. Great. All's well that ends well. And you're just like, what? What just what just happened? And you then you mm-hmm. see them walk over to the holodeck and Reg pulls out this like cool, like plastic cube. Super thingy. cool neon cube. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like glowing and it's got lights or whatever. And you're like, whoa, what's that? And they go over to the observation lounge where Picard explains everything, which is this is again very, very Sherlock. Like at the end of all the stories, when he figures out Whoever the killer is or the thief or the the crime gets foiled or the bank robbers or whatever the story may be, there's always a reveal where where Watson is going, but how did you know? And then he goes, yeah. well, it was obvious from X, Y, Z and this and this and that. And as you're listening, you're like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, that did happen. That was weird. But you would have never put them together in a million years yeah. until it's yeah. all laid out. So that's kind of what's going on here is Picard's doing the Sherlock reveal. And Picard's like, well, I just used Moriarty's trick against him. So he tricked us into thinking we were on the real ship when we were on a holodeck. So I tricked him into thinking he was on the real ship when he was in a holodeck. And it was really a program inside of a program inside of a program. Yeah. Um, and they they point at the cube and they say, you know, the program is actually still running. So they're on their way to whatever planet Riker suggested. Mm-hmm. And it they put it inside of this like battery thing. And they said there's enough energy, enough charge in here that they can live a long happy life together and i was like that's really sweet so they did you know i think it was troy or it was either troy or beverly who was like wow so you did give him you you kept your you gave him a life yeah promise, which was to get him off the holodeck you've given him the ability to explore the universe in a really novel way that it, over the course of four years they hadn't thought to do so mm-hmm. i think moriarty was right that focus the mind really was focused by that deadline um do i think he it was good that he almost destroyed the ship no but i will say it was effective because he did, and this is why he did get he gonna, got his result. This is why he's going to never learn that crime doesn't pay. Because every time he does a crime, it pays because he's a mastermind, <laughs> and it always works. Which is to your point, Andrea, why he fell back on it when he had to take matters yeah, to his own he's hands. Like, well, you've it you've given me no works. choice. Yeah, because it works every time. It works, works every, every time. time. Now I love this final line in the episode <laughs> where Barclay, you know, Picard is saying like. 
you know, they'll live their lives and never know any difference. So it kind of brings about that philosophical question. Like, are we in an elaborate simulation, just like sitting on someone's desk? And I love how like politely uncomfortable that idea makes Barclay. He's like, "Uh right. And so they all file out of the observation lounge and Barclay goes, computer and program. And then nothing happens. And he goes, okay. And like walks out. And I love that. And I think there's no other character who could have pulled off that line that mm-hmm. way. I thought it was just so brilliant. And there's no other character so who would have freaked out like that about the idea of it, who would have been so uncomfortable. Everyone else is like, ha ha ha. And just walked out. Right. And Data would <laughs> yeah. have been like, it would have been an been 80s like, freeze frame. Yeah. It would have been. Yeah. But for Barclay to be uncomfortable, like similar to what you were saying about this whole idea of this inception type episode where you were like, that makes me uncomfortable. That's a scary mm-hmm. idea of being trapped mm-hmm. in simulation. Like there should be someone in the room who's like, wait a minute, that's, not cool. And that's Barkley. Like he's the perfect person. And actually what was so interesting about this is I had heard this theory a couple years ago where people think that the world is simulate simulation or something like that. Mm-hmm. that re- this reminded me of that when Barkley was like in program and then it didn't end. He was like, phew, guess we're not in a simulation. But I thought that was not the best proof of concept, but whatever. No, because Picard <laughs> was like computer codes? arch, computer arch. Yeah. yeah. And like, it wasn't, it wasn't showing up, but like, he still knew he was, that's what I thought too, where I was like, like Barkley, I'd, I'd want to like, be like, poking into some panels or something. I don't know. Just take, take your comm badge off and throw it really hard. And if nothing happens, then you're good. So I looked at this philosophy because I was like, what was that whole idea of the simulation thing? So there was a philosopher named Nick Bostrom who proposed the idea that the universe and everything in it might be a simulation. And he did this in a, in a journal called the Philosophical Quarterly in 2003. This theory has gained a ton of support over the years where people are really, you know, there's a lot, a lot, a lot of people believing that this whole universe, our entire reality that we experience mm-hmm. is a simulation, which to me, um, I'm kind of like, so this, this kind of why this episode didn't bother me. I'm kind of like, so what? Because to me, our perceptions dictate our reality. Our reality. Yeah. Regardless, like I might perceive a conversation totally different from how you perceive it. And I might come away from it feeling really happy and you might come away from it feeling really mad. Mm-hmm. Were either of those false realities? Were either of those simulations? Mm-hmm. Like not really, but our, what we perceived was absolutely what happened. Like you can't tell us that's not what happened because mm-hmm. that's what we've decided. You know what I mean? So yes. I think that's why this particular episode didn't bother me because their simulation was very similar, like almost identical to their regular life. And yeah. that's why episodes like the Riker episode does bother me because the simulation part is nothing like their regular life. It's totally different. It's totally Mm. removed. It's really creepy. It's really scary. It's not just like, you know, world A and world B where the only thing that's Mm -hmm. different is right-handed people are left-handed. Where you're like, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, I could see that. Like, I still... Actually, there was... um, I'm going to do a really, really bad job of explaining this, so please be aware of that. Um, The Nobel Prize that went out um, last year, I believe, there's a whole bunch of categories, but one of the Nobel Prizes went out to this, like, team who, in essence, kind of discovered that, like, the universe is not observable until it's thought of. So, like, kind of like a dream. Like, you're dreaming of walking in a forest and the forest appears. But before you thought of walking in the forest, there wasn't anything actually there. So, it was – it has to do with, like, some quantum mechanics stuff. Like, I I mean, I spent, I spent like, the whole evening, like, reading stuff about it because I was so fascinated. And I was like, wow, the more I read, like, the less I actually understand about what this mm-hmm. is. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it kind of goes back to the, like, are we a simulation on someone's desk? Which mm-hmm. I think is a really kind of scary thought because we would like to think that, like – 
you know, we're living on this planet. We've got our lives. We've got our whatever, you know, we're doing whatever we're doing. But I just thought that that was really fascinating. Now, actually, Daniel Davis in his cameo, and he was so generous with his time. He gave us a whole bunch of information um, and like memories and stuff of like elementary deer data and ship in a bottle. And one of the things that he said is that this episode in particular is one of his top five favorites, not because he's in it, but because what it's about, like someone was created by a computer finding themselves a sentient being and wanting to live and survive outside of the holodeck. And the whole question of like, what is reality? What are human beings? What is real? Are we sitting in a simulation on someone's desk? Like that is why Daniel Davis said, like, this is one of his favorite episodes because it asks these really deep questions and it does it in a way that combines like TNG, which he had been a Uh fan of for a long time and Sherlock Holmes together, like two very, very different, but also like really brilliant, sort of universes together uh-huh. existing together. Um, I thought that that was really, really neat. Now, also, he gave us a little bit of background. So he auditioned for Professor Moriarty for the in Elementary Deer Data up against a friend of his who's already passed named Brian Bedford, who was an actor, and they'd done Hamlet together like in the early 70s. And Brian was British, so Daniel Davis thought he he was like the more natural fit. He, he was, you know, that he was like, mm-hmm. yeah, he's like, oh, he's a shoe and he's British. I'm not, you know, whatever. Um, and he actually kind of realized he's like, once I, <laughs> once I realized, like, I kind of didn't have a shot to get this, like I was able to kind of like relax more and, and like, and, mm-hmm. and then as it, as it turns out, he nailed the role. Right. And I think this is such a lovely little detail as a show of like no ill will, Brian Bedford invited Davis to dinner at his place to celebrate him getting the role. And I thought that was really, that was just really sweet mm-hmm. because here's two people who could both probably absolutely kill in this role. And one gets it. And the other one is like, it's a uh, congratulations, man. Yeah. Like, let me take you to dinner. And like, I just thought that was really, really cute. Um, I And I really enjoyed that cameo. Like it was so mm-hmm. well worth it for us to pay a couple of bucks to just get some insight. Um, also the way that he speaks in general. So, Daniel Davis does a British accent for James Moriarty. He sounds exactly the same, but just American. But he has a very like soothing, yeah, intelligent, like a lovely really good voice. A- audible voice. <laughs> like oh if he my was God. an audible reader, you'd be like, listen, let me listen to it again. <laughs> like he's got a hundred percent, a hundred percent. So it was just lovely to watch. And he's like, well, and I do remember this and this. Um, and like we, you know, there's there's some stuff out on the internet about this may not be the last time we see Moriarty in the Trek universe. And if that's the case, then I'm really hoping that that's true because who wouldn't want to see more of him? I would. And, you know, what I, one of the other thing I love about Ship in a Bottle is that we get a where are they now, which we don't often get in an episodic like TNG. So we're like, oh, this is where they are now. And the where are they now in so beautifully. And um, that's another thing that I love that it's a callback all the way from season freaking two. And it ends on such a positive note. At the very end of the episode, the camera pans out and we get to see these gas giants collide at a huge star form. It's just really, really pretty. And it's like the end. And it it left me feeling really good and like happy because it's such a happy light episode versus last week's, which was like really heavy, really good, but really heavy. And it makes you feel sad at the end. You know, this one like made me feel so happy. And it's one of those ones where it's like, this is why I love this show. You know, that like happy, like warm, fuzzy Mm -hmm. feeling inside. Yeah, because even like last week, you know, Picard, they rescued him and he's going to be okay. But you're like, but you've been through some really heavy shit. And like, this is going to leave scars. This won't leave any scars. This is great. And 
the countess and Moriarty are like sailing off into like their dream life. This is, mm-hmm. this is great. That's like great. they don't need to know that they're not real. They're happy with their lives. I think it's wonderful. What are your final thoughts on this episode? I love all of these characters and I really loved the, the inception style ideology mm-hmm. of the show. Obviously this was made long before the movie inception, even though we've, like, we've talked about it a bunch of times. Um, but I like the, I like that idea of a show because it's really, really mind bending. And, um, I also wondered, this was, this was like a final wondering, I guess. I wondered if Moriarty and the Countess were going to age in the program. Like if they Mm. put that into the program so that they could like actually kind of like grow old and experience the passage of time. I don't know. But anyways, I just thought it was really sweet, really beautiful. One of my top 10. Um, so, so happy we got to finally review this episode. I know. We've been waiting to talk about this one. We've been waiting to talk about this one since elementary, dear data. I mean, uh, my final thoughts are this. The brain pretzel at the end always kind of hurts my mind, but otherwise, like, I love this episode so much. I wrote one of my top 10 for sure, which I've said probably 20 times. It's, Mm -hmm. I love this episode. It's so fun. Um, it's a callback. It is a where are they now? You know, in the beginning of our podcast, we were asking a lot of where are they now? And then after a while, you're like, okay, so such and such species went on and did whatever, like the end, right? Where it's mm-hmm. like, we don't ask for where are they now as much, but I really love that we got this one. And it was just such a one-off. Like, hey, remember that one episode we did with Sherlock Holmes and that bad guy? Let's bring that back four years from now. Like, I'm so glad they did. And I really, really, really want to see... I just want to see more of Professor Moriarty. I mm-hmm. love this episode so much. So on that really high note, we're about to face plant into some broken glass next week with season six, episode 13, Aquiel. Thank you guys so much for listening. We'll see you next week. Bye. Thanks for geeking out with us. Be sure to join the crew at the TNGpodcast.com to be the first to know when we do our live shows or host events exclusively for our members. See you next time.